Uh, This morning we're continuing our series on discipleship and we're looking at Numbers 13. And um, our reader is going to come in a minute and and, and read this section of Scripture to us. But let me kind of give you a little background. Uh, The nation of Israel is encamped on the plains of Moab preparing to answer the call of God, or maybe not, (laughs) and and, and cross the Jordan River and go and possess the land of Canaan. And at the beginning of chapter 13, um, God tells Moses to send spies across the Jordan into the land and to see the enemy and to see the, uh, the quality or the nature of the land that he's calling them to possess. And when the spies come back, uh, we hear this report. into all the congregation and show them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of the Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell in the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, and for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become like prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through, a spy it out, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to, said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting of all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will the people despise me, and how long will they not believe me, in spite of all the signs that I have gone have done among them? It's the very word of God. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Our great God, we rejoice this morning that you have not left us in silence, but you have spoken into the chaos of our world. You have spoken into the ambiguity. You've spoken into the skepticism. 
You've spoken into the unbelief. And so, Father, this morning we pray that by Your Spirit You would open our hearts, that You would open our eyes and our ears to see, to receive, and to do Your Word. Father, would, would You make us a people empowered by Your Spirit that are doers of Your Word, that love passionately and sacrificially, that make disciples trusting that You're a God that can change the darkest heart, the most hard heart, the most stubborn heart set against You into a devoted follower and disciple-maker of Yours because that's precisely what You've done for us. Oh, Father, would You come by Your Spirit and do something great among us. Convince the unconvinced. Impassion the passionless. And Father, You know my sin. And You know my only hope to stand up here is the very person of Jesus Christ. So Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You for Your forgiveness, for Your righteousness. Thank You that You're coming again to make all things new. Thank You that You're interceding now on my behalf and our behalf, even by Your Spirit with such language and noises and words that we wouldn't even understand if we heard. But You are working for us even now and You never stop. And we praise You because we need it so badly. So Father, we anticipate something powerful from Your Word this morning because it is Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what if God this morning had you suit up for the Super Bowl? Now, we all know who's going to win. Hey, I'm a Cam Newton fan. I'm torn, but I lived in Colorado for five years. My daughter's there. Hey. And I was there last week, and the shirt looked nice, so here you go. <laughs> but, what, but seriously, what if God called you to do something so foolish, like line up against the Denver Broncos today? And you, the ball was snapped to you, and you've got to somehow get away from Von Miller. <laughs> or what if you were lined up opposite Cam Newton? And if by some twist of fate you got through the line, which we know probably wouldn't happen, you had to somehow bring down 6'5", 250-pound Cam Newton. If you're with me this morning, you understand what Israel was facing. It was just as absurd to tell Israel to take the land of Canaan. It was foolish. Israel, they weren't a bunch of warriors, they were worshippers. They were chefs, they were musicians, they were used to throwing feasts and parties. And they were former slaves, meaning they had no access to learn how to battle. They didn't have the privilege of learning how to use a sword. They didn't have the privilege of learning how uh, all the tactical ins and outs of war. 
And yet God looks at His people that He has been training to be worshipers, and He says, cross the Jordan and take the land. And by the way, I I want you to send spies. And I want your spies to go see the enemy. (laughs) And so the spies go, and the majority of them, all but Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, those dudes are bad. And we don't have a chance. I mean, they understood the odds. And as we make the correlation, which is not too far of a stretch this morning, to God's command to us to make disciples, to be disciple makers, not just of our neighbor next door, the person that we work with, but of the nations, the whole world. That's your job. That's my job. That's what He has redeemed us for in this world, to make disciples. If we really understand that He's calling us individually to make disciples, we must be feeling what Israel was feeling. And that is, there's no way. And yet, where we want to get this morning is from, there's no way, to, if God delights in us, He will give us the land. We have nothing to fear, because God has removed His favor from them... And put His favor on us. If we learn anything from this passage when it comes to making disciples, it's this. Making disciples does not depend on your giftedness nor mine. It depends on the power of God. And that has to be a living reality in your life if you're going to be a disciple maker. Meaning, if you're going to be faithful in the Christian life, the reality that God's power is available to you and for you, and that He will go with you in your disciple-making, that has to be a reality for you to be a disciple-maker, because it is not about your giftedness. If you're trusting how much training you've had, if you're trusting how many Bible verses you know, if you're trusting all these other things, you will not make disciples of Jesus. You might make disciples of you, but you're not going to make disciples of Jesus unless you understand the only way someone becomes a disciple or grows in their discipleship is by His power. So let's look at it. How do we become disciple-makers? Disciple-making demands doing something. That seems simple, doesn't it? It demands doing something. It demands identifying people in your life, people in your city, people in this country, this world, and doing something. Engaging with them. Putting yourself out there. God says, take the land. I mean, can it get any more simple? Take the land. Do it. Cross the Jordan. Get up. Put on your clothes, cross the Jordan, and go into Canaan. I mean, disciple-making is not rocket science. (laughs) It demands doing something. And you see, the Great Commission is the same thing. I mean, it says the same thing. Go and make disciples. Do something. Go. Make disciples. It's really hard for me uh, to preach this message because God redeemed me from a very pharisaical background. 
Um, you see, Pharisees are all about religion. Pharisees are all about appearance. And my Phariseeism was wrapped up in a specific time of church history called the Reformation. And that may, might sound absolutely absurd to you, but, but to me it was real. My Christianity, if you will, was learning what the Reformer said and trying to be a Reformer. Not necessarily bring Reformation to today, but make the church look like it did in the 1600s. And I would not be caught dead in a Broncos jersey, nor would I be caught dead preaching behind a table because the Puritans had pulpits. And they were robed up and decked out, and so was I. And there's nothing wrong with preaching from a pulpit. There's nothing wrong with wearing a robe and being decked out unless you were depending on it and not Jesus to be your righteousness. And that's precisely where I was. There may be some in here that need to get dressed up because your righteousness is looking unkept. <laughs> you see, me wearing this this morning was a gospel issue in my life. You say, that is so ridiculous. No. Because the devil can take the slightest little thing to get us to look to as opposed to Jesus. But the Scriptures are very clear. We are called to do something. You see, why is Phariseeism so bad? Because in Memphis, which is one of the most churched cities in the country, which I've said this numerous times, we are the poorest city in the country. How has that come about? Phariseeism. Legalism. Something has happened in the church. And maybe one body of believers uh, throughout the last 50, 60, 70 years, you know, for them it was, it was the Reformation theology. Maybe for somebody else it was some other theology. But all of us moved as far east as we possibly could. And when the poverty got closer, we just moved further. And that is precisely how we could be one of the most church cities in the country and yet the poorest. Because we were doing our Christianity and it was little more than religion. While the poor got poorer. While a city geographically isolated the poor over here and the school abandoned the school system for the poor, abandoned any kind of, of aid or help tangibly and relationally for the poor, except for maybe starting a nonprofit. And let me say something. Thank God for nonprofits. This is not a slam against nonprofits. Hear me. This is a slam against the church for not being the church. And if the nonprofits didn't rise up, the poor and the marginalized and the schools would have nothing. So thank God for nonprofits. But dear friends, if we are going to make a difference in this city, we've got to own every nook and cranny of this city. When Jesus said, go, He calls us to go in our city. And yes, does He call us to go to those we work with? And if we, we work in, in Clark Tower, yes. But not only those. 
Because listen, listen to James. In James 1, 19, we read, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Man, all we did was sit around and talk about the reformers and which, what Lorraine Bettner said about predestination. You know, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Wow. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's, he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceive his heart, this person reli- person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you see it? We have to do something. Yes, we are saved through believing something. We're going to get there. It's so hard for me not to get there right now. It's not our doing that saves us. But if we're saved, we do something. We see it when the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, approached Jesus and said, Can you narrow Christianity down for me? And this is what he said in Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they're the Pharisees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now what that last phrase is, all the law and all the prophets depend on this one command of loving God and loving your neighbor. What that means is the whole sum of of the Christian life can be summed up in that. And you can be doing a lot of stuff. But if you aren't doing that, you've missed the crux. You've missed everything that, that the gospel is about. And Jesus demonstrated this. He demonstrated this by going into the land of Samaria. And, and sitting at a well, he encounters a Samaritan woman. And he makes her a disciple. And then at the end of this, the disciples come and, and say, Hey, why aren't you eating? And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You see, why did Jesus go into Samaria? 
Every other Jew, when he was going from Galilee to Judea, would go around Samaria because he, they didn't want to get uh, become defiled by the Samaritan people. It's like parts of Memphis. There are parts of Memphis. A lot of believers in other parts of Memphis, they're not going to drive through the hood. That's exactly what was happening in this day, and Jesus went right through the hood. And he meets this woman. Why did he do this? He did it because he knew our tendency. He did it because he knows that we would be orphans and we would be fearful and we would just just talk to those that it was safe to talk to. That we that our, our practice of disciple making would just be limited right here and not to the whole world. And what Jesus was demonstrating is, I am king, not just of your culture and the people in your little pocket, but I am king of the universe. Every knee will bow. We heard Rick say that this morning. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. No matter how high a person is class-wise, how low a person is class-wise, no matter the color of skin, no matter the language, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And you know how this will happen. It will happen through God's people moving out into the world and believing that. Making disciples of Jesus. The church has done about everything but make disciples of Jesus. And dear friends, that's our mission. So I want to ask you a simple question. Say, Richard, okay, I'm here, yeah. Who are you going to make a disciple? Name some. This isn't hypothetical. That's what I'm trying to get. Am I doing a good job of that? Who are you going to pursue to make a disciple? That's the first step. Like, literally. Like, write it down. Like, get a list. Who? If you're not doing that, you're not going to make a disciple. Make a list. I'm trusting Jesus right now. I'm going to make it the bent of my life to see these people come to faith. And dear friends, Jesus says it can't just be those in your culture. You know, this is a tough balance. We emphasize this a lot in this body, primarily because, not because the professional community... um, is not a legitimate mission field. Hear me. We make this distinction of the marginalized and the isolated and and those abandoned by believers because that's precisely what has happened in Memphis. But let me tell you that your office, your boss, the CEO of your company should be just as much a target for your love and your compassion and your prayers and your service as someone on the streets, okay? But dear friends, do you see that we are called to the marginalized as well? (laughs) That that can't just be where you live your life or nothing's going to change. And so you have to be strategic. As Jesus was strategic to go through the land of Samaria, you've got to get out of your context and you've got to identify people in different parts of the city. I, I just want to try something here. If you work for a nonprofit, if you work for a ministry that targets the 
um, under-resourced in our city. Would you stand this morning? Would you stand? There we go. Here we go. All right. So you don't know where to start? Look around you. Ask them. All right, y'all can sit down. Do something. Do something tangible today. Don't leave this room without talking to somebody around you if you don't know where to start. Do something. Secondly, to do something, you have to know something. When God called Israel to go and take the land, He knew that they would be intimidated. So throughout the Scriptures, there are 170 promises of God to His people to give them the land of Canaan. 170. That's crazy. I mean, do they really need to be reminded 170 times, hey, I'm giving you this land? 55 of that 170 promises to give them the land, he confirms with an oath. 55. 12 of those, he promises that that this, this promise to give them the land is going to be an everlasting covenant. I mean, what else can he do? What else can he do to convince them that he's giving them the land? And yet only two believed. Only two heard it. That sounds like the church today, doesn't it? Over and over, God is revealing His nature to His people. All they have to do is wake up, go outside, pick up the food off the ground, don't get too much, eat it, and they're good. They complain about that, God gives them quail. They say they're thirsty, all right, tap the rock. Up, we're going to die, here we are. We're up against the Red Sea. Okay, hold up your staff. Walk through. All right. I mean, God is constantly providing for them. God is constantly walking with them. God is constantly giving them signs of His faithfulness and His love and His mercy to them. And yet Caleb and Joshua were the only ones to remember They knew something and they believed something that nobody else was. Look at 14, Numbers 14, 7 through 9. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Listen, if the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread for us. Isn't that beautiful? They are bread for us. We can eat our way through this place. So cool. They are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see, Joshua and Caleb had a specific view of life. And that view said that their God was not just one God among many, but their God reigned over the universe. He was the sovereign one of the universe. His will went. They believed that God was was so massive and yet so personal that He is for us, that there is nothing that He could command that they couldn't do because He would enable them to do it. Isn't that beautiful? Is that your worldview Today, is that your worldview that God can do anything He's commanded me to do? 
Well, He's commanded us to make disciples. Isn't that beautiful? You see, fear. They say in this passage, do not fear the people of the land. Fear is so powerful. I've been reading about um, how fear and anxiety impacts our brains. And fear literally has the ability and the power to reshape our brains. Isn't that crazy? And there's all kinds of studies right now. I've, I've been reading some studies about children that grow up in a very fearful atmosphere. Uh, a chaotic and violent atmosphere. And their brains are are being so impacted by this because they're they're literally turning off in a real sense. Because to soak in fear and anxiety and violence and hurt and pain is just overwhelming. And so the natural mechanism of the brain is is to shut down almost. It's crazy. But the reverse of that is true. Faith. Confidence feeds the brain. That's what your brain feeds on. That's what's good for your brain. Thus, think about it. Now take this next step. God's command for His Word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. To make His Word that which we meditate on day and night. Physically, this is crazy. Physically, if we feast on the Word of God, we will begin to believe the Word of God. Because our brains will be shaped around it. Maybe God knows what He's talking about. Colossians 3, 3-4, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Can that be a living reality in your life today? Meditate just on that one Scripture, Colossians 3, 3 through 4. If you meditate on that one Scripture and it becomes your God throughout each day, do you think that you'll live in the anxiety and the fear that you presently experience? No! You see, dear friends, what, what Joshua and Caleb did is they knew the Word of God. They knew His promises and they believed Him. They said, we're taking them in. They're not just going to sit on the, the surface of our hearts and minds, but we're going to feast on them like, like we're going to feast this afternoon on that Super Bowl spread. I mean, do you understand that? He says, look, feast on this. Not on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Feast on this. Feast on my Word. The promises of God, the reality that God delights in us, was Joshua and Caleb's hope. Psalm 149.4 For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. When you wake up in the morning, I would assume most of you, just as I, are not relishing in the pleasure of God. Do you know why we've got to take a verse like Psalm 149.4 and make it the center of our minds? Because we don't believe it naturally. Our flesh is fighting against it. But if we were to wait, go throughout the day believing, God is delighting in me. And why is He delighting in me? Because of Jesus. 
Not because of anything I've done. I can't change what Jesus has done. You see, the gospel is news. That's what gospel means, good news. News is, is, is a report of something that has happened, is happening, or will happen. And that's the gospel. Jesus has come in the flesh. There is no other religion on the world that is more rooted in the reality of this world, of the dirt and the mud of this world, than Christianity. Jesus became man, and He lived under the standard of the law. And He obeyed that law perfectly for you and me, because we can't. And that means... Christianity is not a religion where God sits on high and says, okay, you try, to, you try to do it, and my love and my acceptance and my delight in you will be conditioned upon how well you do. No. He says, here's my law and you can't do it, therefore I've got to send my son to do it for you. And then he went to the cross, and God the Father, in his just and righteous anger, poured out all of his wrath for His people upon His Son Jesus. So that now, simply by believing, we become the very delight of God. And if we believe, we can't even take credit because faith is a gift from God. There's nothing like it. We have the best news on the planet. Jesus didn't just come to save us so that we could be reconciled to God, but He's coming back to save the whole world. There'll be no more poverty. Everything that plagues you in this life, every concern you have that keeps you awake at night, Jesus is coming back to solve. He is your hope. So hope in Him. Pour your life into Him. Do you have a strategic plan for studying the Word of God? Do you have a strategic plan for how you are going to grow in His Word throughout this year? You've got to do something. But to do something, you've got to know something. Thirdly and finally, to do something, you have to know something. And what you have to know is God, and God is love. To know God is to know His love. What's the difference between Joshua and Caleb and the rest of the spies? The other spies could tell you about the law of Israel. The other spies practiced the laws of Israel. They practiced the religion of Israel. They participated in the feast. They read the word. But they didn't have a living faith in God. It wasn't real to them. You want to know what keeps me awake at night? Do you know what what this nagging thing is in me as a pastor that keeps me constantly on edge? It's the fact I know we can have a church full of people who look like Jesus followers, full of people who can talk like Jesus followers, but full of people who are not Jesus followers. Please don't miss this. A disciple of Jesus must love Jesus. He must be in living relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. He must walk with God. He must relate to God. He must have a relationship with God. 
Do you have a relationship with God in which you are communing with Him by His Spirit through His Word? In worship, do you feel the presence of God sometimes? I hope it's all the time. Are you convicted of sin? Do you feel Him nudging little parts of your life? And are you saying, okay, God, but I need you. I, need, I can't do it alone. I need you. Are you walking? Are you battling with Him on your side? Not just for Him as some far-off deity, but is He real in your life? Dear friends, that's what a disciple is. If God delights in us, the land will be ours. They speak as men who know God. Dear friends, He has equipped us for intimacy with Him. Listen to Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What? I want you to hear me here. This... This was one of the things that absolutely blew all my categories when I was a staunch Pharisee. And I'm not saying I'm completely free from being a Pharisee. I, I, no, I'm not. But listen, to the, this is what just absolutely blew all my categories. Why did God send the Spirit of Christ? One of the primary reasons that He sent the Spirit of Christ to live in Richard Reeves is so that when I'm fearful, when, when I feel threatened when I feel weak, when I feel abandoned, that He can unleash the power of His Spirit to move me to the throne of grace to say, Daddy, I need you. <laughs> really? That's why God put the Spirit... Yes, He wants me to have an intimate relationship with Him. Of such an intimate relationship that no other relationship on this planet can replace. Do you understand that all of your intimacy issues, all that you're looking for in your work or your relationships or your hobbies or your performance or sports or whatever, or your team this afternoon winning, or I saw a guy spent $21,000 to go to this game. That dude is looking for intimacy that he's not going to get. Only Jesus can give that kind of intimacy. But friends, do you understand He can give you that kind of intimacy? Oh, it's so hard to believe. We are inundated with so many other things that are competing with Jesus. Oh, if I can just have this, if I can just be that, if I can just look this way. No, Jesus, He's behind every desire. I've been thinking about that for a long time. Maybe it's an easy concept, but and I'm just not that smart. But C.S. Lewis writes a lot about our desires. And he says, hey, we, I mean, if we have a desire for something that in this life it cannot be fulfilled, either God is the cruelest thing on the, the you know, cruelest one in the universe, or our home is not here, and there is a place where we will be fulfilled one day. That's deep stuff. And it's beautiful. Because whether I'm eating the best dinner or feeling the worst sorrow, this is not my home and it's just going to get better. Is that a living reality to you? Get your heart, mind, and soul deep into God through His Word and prayer and then understand that you have a mission. You have a mission. 
I think the reason, and I'll end with this, the reason that, that the Christian life is boring and drab and we've got to look for something else, we've got to find some excitement, okay, yeah, I've, I've accepted Jesus and I got that, you know, I got that taken care of now, you know, and I'm, I've done pretty good in my work and I've got a nice house and I, I think the reason that many of us are so bored and fall into so many different sins and of the flesh and so forth is because we don't realize and we don't take seriously the reality that Jesus said, Go. You have a mission. Every minute of every day, this world is your responsibility. To make it better, to reflect His glory, to make disciples, to go to the needs and to bring the hope and love of Christ and make it tangible. You have a mission. It's not my mission. It's not the elders' mission. It's not the worship team's. It is your mission. And you say, I feel unprepared. Then you better start getting discipled under somebody. <laughs> you say, I, I don't know how to do it. Well, you better start figuring it out because God has sent us to war. And the reason that the world is in the condition that it is is because we have forgotten that. And our mission is to go love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To bring them into the love of the Father. Do you understand that that is your mission? If you do, then you'll understand getting on your knees and crying out to God. You'll understand going to His Word and saying, Man, i got to go... I gotta learn it, because I'm supposed to tell other people about him. Do you see it? When you're on mission, you go from being a consumer to a warrior. Are you a warrior for God, or are you just a consumer of his religion? Dear friends, let's go to this table today and let's say I'm done with religion. I want to know the living Christ. Let's eat him by faith. Let's drink him in by faith, and then go out. And make disciples. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us a mission and you have equipped us for this mission with the very gospel of Jesus. Father, I pray that our time around the table today would be intimate. I pray that it would not just be some exchange of bread and wine or juice. But I pray that you'd meet us at these tables and you would draw us into fellowship that you would strengthen our faith, that you would point out our sin that's holding us back, that you would grant us great faith to be disciple-makers. Father, I lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.